Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Steve Curtin. Steve, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on, Earl. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the conversation that we're getting ready to have here because uh, you hit on a lot of cylinders that are really important to me as part of this Responsible Leadership conversation. But before we get into that, um, what I want listeners to know is that Steve is the author of the best-selling book, Delight Your Customers, and is a globally known expert and speaker on customer service, management, and leadership. He was rated fourth by Global Guru in its annual listing of the top 30 customer service experts in the world. Congratulations on that. Mm -hmm. Um, Before launching his consulting company in 2007, uh, Steve had a 20-year career with Marriott International. Today, his client list includes Carnival Cruise Line, Napa Auto Parts, TJ Maxx, and Health One. Now, what we're going to talk about a lot here, kind of as the backdrop of of most of the discussion today, is his new book, The Revelation Conversation, Inspire Greater Employee Engagement by Connecting to Purpose. So, Steve, with that background and that uh, level of experience, I'm very excited to hear how you answer that first question that I start out all of my guests with. When you hear the term responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? Well, Earl, to me, it means accepting responsibility to foster a work environment and a culture that enables employees to thrive. And what I mean by that is it allows employees to learn, to grow, and to develop in their roles and to achieve their potential at work. It would be irresponsible for a leader to withhold or to shield job purpose from an employee, more likely what happens is the leader, uh, him or herself, is aloof from job purpose, which itself is irresponsible. Mm. I like that. I like that there. That, that's, uh, uh, that's a nice way to, to look at it. And, and I'm really kind of curious, right, with, uh, with your kind of focus on customer service and purpose, what what got you down that path? What got you into customer service in the first place? Um, well, I worked for Marriott for 20 years, and I worked in uh, training and development at Marriott. I also worked in operations and uh, sales and marketing and human resources. And so I was uh, provided with opportunities before I was uh, um, had training in my job title. I was afforded opportunities to speak either at uh, orientation or supervisory development classes. Um, 
department meetings, uh, sort of discussing Marriott culture and customer service. And then that blossomed over time into more formal roles, actually facilitating customer service classes, uh, working on development teams to, um, to write uh, customer service training programs at the non-management management levels and to facilitate those programs. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's kind of not, uh, it's not too, too different than my path to getting in into this, right? I got into, after I left the military, uh, joined the civilian, uh, federal service and noticed some kind of lacking in, in leadership development training and kind of got involved that way. And that kind of led me down this path here. So it's interesting to hear, uh, you kind of took this, a, a fairly similar path just with uh, customer, uh, customer service there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, what a great organization to, to cut your teeth on with that. Cause you know, the one thing I love about staying with Marriott, uh, hotel properties is, is the customer service. I've always got top notch customer service at, at any of their properties I've ever stayed at. And it seems like it's really ingrained in the culture, no matter where you go in the organization, right? Yeah, I believe it is. You know, it all started with the Marriott family and you could dial all the way back to 1927, the founder of Marriott, uh, J.W. Marriott Sr., who's quoted in my book, uh, you know, my my latest book. Um, The the family really stood for uh, customer service excellence and for taking care of the associates, uh, their term for non-management employees. and J.W. Marriott Sr. used to say, if you take care of the associates, they'll take care of customers and the profits will follow. Mm. Yeah, I, I, and I like that philosophy. There was a gentleman I had several episodes back. Actually, it's probably been more like tens of several episodes back. Uh, mm. Robertson Hunter Stewart. Uh, he's based in uh, in France uh, from Scotland originally. But we, we had a similar conversation uh, to that. And I'm, I'm wondering now if that's kind of where he, he, uh, broke his teeth on that. But, um, you know, he, he has this concept, he talks about, uh, employee service. And, and it was that same, uh, concept there is, uh, you know, take care of the people, let the people take care of, of the customers. So, uh, I like that. I like that approach a lot. Uh, cause it reminds me of a story I, I heard a long time ago, uh, with Dan Cathy, uh, of Chick-fil-A mm-hmm. and somebody once asked him, you know, how many employees does Chick-fil-A have? And I don't remember the number now, but it was kind of ridiculously low. It was like 6,000 employees or something like that. And, uh, or no, excuse me, I asked him how many customers he had. And it was like 6,000 customers. And uh, the person looked at him and was like, you're like one of the top fast food chains in the country and you only have 6,000 customers. He's like, yeah. And he says, how can that be? He goes, well, you know, my customers are the employees. The employees serve the people that buy the food. Mm. And uh, I just love that that line of thinking, right? Because it really helps center you as a leader as to what your responsibilities are, doesn't it? Oh, a- absolutely. And, and Chick-fil-A is, of course, renowned uh, for their customer service excellence. Yeah. And, and, it always, it always shows out there. So um, 
enough about Marriott and, and, and Chick-fil-A and all that. I'm really uh, wanting to introduce the listeners to your book, uh, The Revelation Conversation, Inspire Greater Employee Engagement by Connecting to Purpose. So um, I think what I'd like to do when I have guests on here uh, that we're talking about their books is I like to kind of work through the book a little bit. Uh, my listeners know I want to give them just enough because I want them to go buy a copy of the book. And I think it's a great book. We don't, we don't want to give it all away. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, yeah. So, listeners, I think this is a really, really great book. And I really encourage you to go buy a copy of it. Uh, but you'll see why here as we kind of work through this conversation. But I want to kind of start with the title, The Revelation Conversation. W- what is that title about? Well, the, uh, the book went through several title iterations and uh my editor and i just really drilled down to to that number one it's sort of alliterative in the way it uh the way it sounds it sort of rolls off the tongue yeah um so so he liked that and and what i really liked about it is that you know the linchpin chapter of the book is chapter four which is also titled the revelation conversation where i introduce the framework for a one-on-one conversation that a supervisor or a manager or a leader would have uh, with his or her direct report with, uh, with an employee that reports to them. And the revelation conversation is designed to do uh, three things. And that is to reveal, hence the reference to revelation, to reveal the totality of the employee's job role, uh, to connect that job role uh, to the single highest priority uh, of that role, uh, that's the job purpose, and then to inspire greater employee engagement as a result. Mm. And that is such a key topic right now is employee engagement. And I think that's one of the things that I liked about the book was I think the the stuff that, that you share in this book are very critical components to changing that employee engagement number from the, you know, depending on which study you're looking at, there's, you know, between 70 to 80% uh, disengagement. And out of that 70 to 80%, something like 40% are actively disengaged. But I like this conversation piece here because I think that really will go a long way to solving that disengagement problem and get folks more engaged at work. So, um, Let's let's kind of start going down this this road here a little bit, and let's start with um, uh, with the the first part. So, listeners, uh, the the book is broken up into three parts, and the first one is revealing the total job role. Um, so, when you say total job role, what are you talking about there? Well, here I'm talking about the three parts of a job role. And most employees are only aware of two parts of a job role because their immediate supervisor is only aware of two parts of a job role. And those two parts are job knowledge and job skills. In other words, if an employee is brought into an organization and uh, he or she is equipped to possess adequate job knowledge and is also equipped to demonstrate sufficient job skills, then by extension, uh, they are competent to execute uh, job assignments. 
and that's where most supervisors, where most managers and, and uh, most leaders and organizations stop is with the goal of creating competency around them. And there's another part of every job role, which is often overlooked, and that is job purpose. So you have three parts to a job role. You have job knowledge, and you have job skills, and you have this third part, which is job purpose. That's the single highest priority of the job role. And most employees are completely unaware of what that might be. Now, they're competent. <laughs> uh, they possess adequate job knowledge and they demonstrate sufficient job skills. There's no, no issue with that, but they're completely unaware of purpose. Yeah. Well, and, and let me ask you this. Um, well, I'll just put it this way. I'll, I'll go the, with a simple way to ask this question. Why? Why, why do you think that they're, they're unaware or maybe not completely in tune with what the purpose of the job is? I, I believe they're unaware of it because their immediate supervisor is unaware of it. And their immediate supervisor is unaware of it because the management level above them is unaware of it. The, the issue here, Earl, is that nobody is talking about job purpose. Uh, job purpose in most organizations is relegated to the about page of the corporate website. It's relegated to an onboarding uh, meeting or class. It's relegated to an employee handbook. It's perhaps framed and mounted in the executive corridor. But the reality is nobody talks about purpose. And, and, and what I mean here is it, there are guiding statements that are adopted by organizations. Sometimes they're referred to as a purpose statement. Sometimes they're referred to as a mission statement or a vision statement. But these guiding statements are often formalized uh, to the point where they're only shared at, like I said, these uh, formal meetings, you know, the annual all-employee meeting uh, when the CEO gives his or her remarks uh, for the formalized onboarding process. That's when you see these things. But in terms of an employee's daily work environment, they don't, they don't see these things. Typically, right. they don't see these things. What they do see is job functions, the duties and tasks that are associated with their job roles. What they do see is um, a supervisor sees a productivity report uh, or a PNL, or they're made aware of utilization metrics. These are the things that are part of their actual daily world of work, and it just doesn't include purpose. Yeah. That is, again, valuable. And that's been a theme of, of a lot of, uh, especially a lot of recent guests on here is talking about that, the mission statements and, and, and vision statements and purpose statements and whatever your organization decides to call them and, and taking them from being wall art to being something that actually means something in an organization. And I think that's kind of where you're going with this too, right? Is it's not enough to just say them. It's like, do you eat, live, breathe, operate, by those statements, because if you don't, they really don't mean anything, right? Right. Yeah. They they have they lack substance. They're um, I describe them in the book as performative. They're performative statements. Uh, I describe core values as as often being imitative statements. In other words, they imitate uh, the core values that organizations competitors have. 
um, and organizations outside their industry have. You know, for instance, customer service as a value. There's nothing wrong with that value. But if you say we value customer service or we value integrity or we value teamwork or we value leadership, um, you know, that's imitative in the sense that what distinguishes you exactly? What makes you unique? If we were to print out our organization's core values, and then we were also to print out the uh, core values, you know, perhaps from the websites of our competitors and put them side by side and remove any identifiers like logos, um, would our employees actually be able to distinguish our core values from our competitors? And I think the answer is no. Sadly, yeah. Well, I mean, you make a great point because how many people put on on their website there that, you know, one of our core values is to provide top quality customer service? Well, duh. Nobody nobody has in their statement that they want to provide terrible customer service, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you this, right? So we talked about, you know, how employees typically don't understand the purpose of their job because their managers don't understand the purpose. And maybe even the next level manager doesn't understand the purpose. Whose job or role is it to really define what the purpose of a job role is? Well, that would be uh, company leadership, generally speaking. Uh, It'd be the head of the organization. You know, it's important that, that, I mean, this is not a democratic process. And there, uh, unfortunately, there is some writing out there that would suggest that you need to enlist the opinions of, you know, frontline employees, you need to enlist uh, stakeholders, um, the community, whether it be shareholders, whether it be customers, vendor partners. I disagree with all of that. I think the the buck uh, starts and stops here in the sense that in a in a full service restaurant it's the general manager in a hotel it's the general manager at a at a plant facility it's the plant manager at a um, organization or a corporation it may be the CEO or the president that's really where it starts and oftentimes I mean as in the case of Marriott that was founded by a family, the Marriott family, and J.W. Marriott Sr., long ago, uh, developed, you know, he had the awareness to develop guideposts to management. So these, you know, whether you call these things mission statements, vision statements, purpose statements, guideposts, or something else, that doesn't matter. What's important is that you can recall it. And I can tell you the the Marriott family has honored those guideposts uh, for decades, and it has shaped the culture of Marriott that, uh, you know, that, that you raved about earlier in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's uh, yeah. I like that. I mean, you know, and, and just to, you know, kind of clarify, you're not um, necessarily saying that, uh, that, that these things shouldn't necessarily evolve with changing times and, and changing markets and all that good stuff. And that maybe, uh, employees uh, shouldn't have some kind of, you know, let's say, say or influence, uh, but they shouldn't be the ones dictating it, right? Is that is that kind of where I'm I'm picking up, or did I get that totally wrong? 
Well, it's not that you got it wrong, and you have to be careful here. I'm a big fan of participative management. I get that. I get the fact that if people don't have input or don't have a say or don't make a contribution, uh, that they may be less committed to it. I understand all that. Um, But I also understand that the leadership of an organization Uh, the frontline hourly employees, the supervisory level above them, the management level above them are looking toward leadership for guidance. They're not looking at each other. They're looking toward leadership. And so it's very important, whether it is a small business, um, and we're talking about the founder of that business, or whether it is a sophisticated multinational corporation, it is important that the uh, leadership team Um, articulates a purpose for that organization, regardless of what they call it, and that they articulate a set of core values that are not imitative or performative in nature, but uh, a a set of core values that are linked to the leadership, linked to the history of the company, linked to the, the culture and the personality and the character of the organization. And, and, leadership in that position has its finger on the pulse of those things, whereas a frontline hourly associate and, or, or employee, and I've been one, is far removed from those things. And in fact, looking towards leadership to direct them towards the organization's North Star. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that a lot. And that was, uh, you know, kind of uh, you know, why I wanted just to kind of clarify that piece there, because I agree with you a hundred percent. You know, I mean, I, I think leaders role is to, you know, you know, listen, take in changes, that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, they have to be the one making the decisions, setting the standards and holding people accountable to it. So um, yeah. I, now, I like that a lot there. Now, now there are, there are areas and, and I don't want to, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the book, but um, you've, you've read the book or spot read the book and, and know that toward the end of the book, when we talk about inspire and we talk about galvanizing, um, the, the team and establishing an aspirational goal for the team and fostering esprit de corps among team members. When we do that, now we sort of turn a corner into a participative management and we enlist the support of the, those closest to the customer, the frontline hourly employees. We enlist their support to identify what I write about in the book is these leading indicators, the actions and behaviors that we could incorporate into a pro- process in order to elevate the customer experience. So they have ownership of that. We also tally, we track, we measure um, the results of those um, actions and behaviors, those leading indicators, and correlate them with the lagging indicators, whether that be a key performance metric or indicator like customer satisfaction or employee engagement or intent to return or customer effort score. So we correlate those so that the frontline hourly employees can see the impact of their ideas and their contributions to the organization's success. Mm. I, I, I like that a lot there. And I think that's a great spot uh, for us to kind of break for a second here to, uh, uh, to have our, our sponsors uh, support play. 
So we're going to stop right there. We're going to let those uh, ads roll. And then when we come back, uh, we'll get a little bit deeper into it. Right, listeners, uh, welcome back from that uh, sponsorship break there. Again, we are talking with uh, Steve Curtin, author of The Revelation Conversation, Inspire Greater Employee Engagement by Connecting to Purpose. And in that first segment there, uh, we talked a lot about revealing the total job role. Uh, but to kind of get us back into the conversation here, I'd like to start uh, with in part two. Um, you start off with these four questions. Uh, what is my purpose at work? What values guide my actions and behavior at work? What purposeful actions and behaviors do I exhibit at work? And what is my team's aspirational goal? So now with these questions here, just, uh, you know, for listeners edification a little bit, um, who is answering these questions? Is it you as the employee? Is it you uh, as a manager or is it both? Well, it's you as a manager. And uh, in fact, these questions are, in are included in the Revelation Conversation book so that the reader, and it's a great distinction that you just make, um, Early in this conversation, you talked about my first book, Delight Your Customers. The target audience for that book was frontline hourly employees on up, uh, supervisory level, management level, senior management level. My latest book, The Revelation Conversation, the target audience for this book is from the immediate supervisory level and up. That's not to say that a motivated uh, hourly employee could not benefit from the book. Um, it's just not written with them in mind. They're really not a part of the target audience. So to answer your question, Earl, these questions are intended to be answered by the reader uh, who would be a supervisor or a manager or a leader. Okay. Well, I like that. Um, now, when you talk about, so I think some of these things are maybe fairly intuitive, uh, for the most part, you know, trying to ask that question, as we've talked about before, about getting into the purpose, uh, the values and that sorts of things. When you talk about an aspirational goal, though, in uh, question four, uh, what what does that mean and why is it important to the process? Yeah, the aspirational goal is the North Star uh, for the team. And it's important because there are a number of uh, KPIs, key performance indicators that uh, corporations track and that they chase. And they're objective and you can quantify them. And you can see at the end of the period, at the end of the month, at the end of the quarter, you can see where you stand relative to your goals and objectives. The aspirational goal, what's unique about it is that it cannot be quantified and it is uh, created in such a way that you can never really attain it, uh, hence the name aspirational. So it's something that you make progress towards. It's something that you create movement and momentum toward, but you never actually attain it. And I'll give you an example. There mm -hmm. is a uh, bioscience company in Northern California uh, 
named Grail. And Grail is in the business of conducting cancer research. And so they have a team of uh, clinicians, clinical researchers, uh, doctors, and others who have a mission to detect cancer early when it can be cured. So if you detect cancer, either precancerous stage or at stage one or two, there's an 80% survival rate. If you don't catch it until stage three or four, uh, there's an 80% uh, mortality rate. And so that's their mission is to detect cancer early. Their aspirational goal is to save lives. Mm. I like that. Yeah. So that's their, that's their North star. That's what they're in pursuit of. Will they ever reach it? No, but they'll always work toward saving lives. Yeah. Well, and, and I like that. That is so valuable. It's something, uh, you know, I've talked about a lot on this show, this, the, uh, the concept of finite and, and infinite games and, and the, the difference between saying, Hey, you know, I want to be able to detect 80% of cancers in stage one. That's, that's a finite goal. That's something that you can accomplish. And the, the, the downside to that is, is when you do accomplish it, you know, there's this sense of I won and, you know, complacency can set in because you beat the game. Whereas what you talked about there is save lives. That's a continuous thing. Like you pointed out, that's aspirational. That's not saving lives is something you can always continue to do. So, um, you know, if they ever do reach their goal of being able to, let's say, detect, and I'm throwing out arbitrary numbers here, Mm -hmm. uh, 80% of cancers in stage one, they still have work to do because there's still other ways to save lives. Right. Right. Yeah. That's great. I love that. I love that. So there you go, folks. I mean, that's a great tip right there. Even if you take nothing else from this, the the power of the aspirational goal is something that uh, can, can constantly keep your organization uh, moving forward. Uh, so, yeah, so I like these questions. And again, folks, go grab a copy of the book and, and go through, uh, go through these questions um, and, and answer them for yourselves too. I think, I think that was the other thing I liked about these questions is even outside of your formal role as, you know, a manager, mid-level manager, upper level manager, C-suite, uh, wherever it is, these are great questions. I don't know if you wrote them this way or not on purpose, Steve, but these are great, these are great questions to just ask yourself as a human being. Yeah, well, there, there I believe you're referring to life purpose. And I actually opened the book with making a distinction uh, in the two journeys chapter. I make a distinction between your purpose in life and your purpose at work. And the purpose, your purpose in life is this uh, vertical journey of self-discovery, uh, which is very, very private. It's existential uh, versus this horizontal journey of self-improvement. That's the professional journey that is uh, public and accessible to others. And really the responsibility, like we talked about at the very beginning of the broadcast, the responsibility of your supervisor and your manager uh, to develop uh, that particular journey, your professional journey, your purpose at work. Yeah. No, and, and I loved that. I love when you made that distinction there because you know, I think that is where a lot of folks end up uh, falling out of alignment, out of engagement is those two paths are a lot of times pointing in different directions. And, and that just, you know, 
that, that just doesn't work. And we're, we're seeing that a lot. Um, but when you get them going in the same, uh, on the same path, man, that that's magic. And uh, kind of to that end, uh, we talked a little bit already about what the revelation conversation is, but like here, um, kind of in chapter four, you said that was kind of the pivotal, uh, chapter there. And I, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, but it's titled initiating the revelation conversation. So who should initiate that conversation? I know you said this is written kind of for managers, right. uh, but should it always be the manager or should an employee come to the a manager from time to time and say, Hey, I want to have this conversation. No, it would be led by a supervisor or a manager uh, and initiated by him or her toward a direct report. Okay. Now, that's and, not and to say that, pardon me, Earl, that's, no, not, that's not to say that a peer couldn't pose the question that initiates the revelation conversation to a peer. Uh, that can happen too. Uh, like I said earlier, if you have a motivated reader uh, motivated frontline hourly employee, uh, you know, the, they can read the book. I mean, they can certainly uh, read and apply the book's lessons, even if they are not in a uh, position of responsibility where they have direct reports themselves. Yeah, I like that. I like that, that looking out for each other piece there. And, and, and do you have any tips, um, on how to initiate this conversation, you know, because uh, I, I can see some of, uh, of the folks here who may, uh, you know, ha- have played out this scenario where, you know, the boss comes down and says, hey, Steve, uh, can I chat with you in my office? And everybody starts doing, you know, the Imperial March. Dun, 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 dun. Mm. And, and it's, you know, that, that's not really what you're talking about here, right? No, no, no. It's a uh, informal. What, what I talk about in the book is that these conversations need to be uh, less formal and more frequent. And so when you say come into my office, depending on the culture, depending on the, the manager, uh, that may be seen as the penalty box. And so you have to be, you have to be careful there. This is more of a um, you know, pull up alongside you in a face-to-face environment. This could also happen in a virtual environment, but it's, it's uh, more of a relaxed, informal, one-on-one conversation that's initiated by the supervisor. And in the book, I mean, the question, I've been uh, using this question for years, and I'm sure I started with a different question, but I arrived at this question, and it really seems to work, and it's the one that uh, I advocate for. And that is simply, would you describe for me, from your perspective, your job role, what your job entails, mm. and then be silent? And what I found is that when I posed that question, um, would you describe for me, from your perspective, your job role, what your job entails, what I tend to hear, um, almost without exception, is a list of job functions, so what I hear are the duties and tasks that are associated with the job role. I don't hear anything about job essence in these lists. And what job essence is, is the reflection through actions and behaviors of job purpose, your single highest priority at work. What I tend to hear are job functions. So then what I say is, well, that's a great list of job functions, which is also a very good point, that it's not zero sum job functions, or job essence. You need to do both. (laughs) You you need to be competent 
you need to know what you're doing and you need to know how to how to do it. You need to be competent, but you're not reaching your potential. You're not uh, maximizing the percentage of engaged employees that you'll have. You're not maximizing the percentage of uh, promoters, uh, which are loyal customers that you'll have if you discount or completely disregard job purpose. So after you ask that initial question and they've listed all these job functions, you say, listen, those are all important. They're all necessary. They're all vital to our success. But I didn't hear anything about the other dimension of your job role, job essence. And what they'll say is, what's that? And I'll say, well, job essence is the reflection through actions and behaviors of your single highest priority at work. And, and then you know what they'll say, Earl? They'll say, what's that? Because yep. n- nobody knows what their single highest priority at work is. But then this gives you the opportunity not to berate them for not knowing it, not to berate them for having a list that was just comprised of job functions with no reference whatsoever to job essence. This is your opportunity to practice humility as a leader and to say, if that's how you would describe the totality of your job role, then I, your supervisor, your manager, have described your job role to you incompletely. In other words, you own it. You say there's this other dimension of every job role, which is job essence. This points to your single highest priority at work. And then this initiates a conversation, which Earl, besides serving a customer directly, may be the best use of a supervisor's time at work. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that ownership piece. That that rings uh, very true with me. Again, with the the Marine Corps background, there, uh, I think that is the, the that is the single best skill that a manager can develop is is taking ownership of a situation. I like the way that you described that there. But but the other thing I love about this conversation, especially the way you describe having it and and the purpose behind it, uh, is to me. And, and maybe this is how you pitch it to, to organizations as well. But, uh, but to me, this is the thing that should maybe not completely replace, but at least go a long way in replacing performance reviews. Because I think if you're having this conversation uh, routinely, candidly uh, with, uh, with, with your, your direct reports, you almost don't need the performance review because you're doing it in real time on a constant basis, right? Well, you are doing it in real time. Your listeners may say, well, listen, how many times can you have a naive learning moment uh, using this question with the same employee? And it's a good point. You know, if, if I were to approach you on a Tuesday and pose this question, and like I said, it's really a naive learning moment in the sense that the employee will likely uh, lack any awareness of their single highest priority at work, and you'll have a discussion about that. So if you were to pose the same question the following day, that might be met with, uh, with uh, confusion um, on behalf of, of the employee. So to your point, uh, you do need to follow up, as I said earlier, more frequently, so this can be daily, and less formally. So it's these one-on-one conversations. And so you might say something, um, if you recall the, uh, the first question that I posed is, would you describe for me from your perspective your job role 
what your job entails. They're going to ask that question once. They're going to have the conversation. It might take five minutes or less, but it'll be very productive. But you may follow up to that question. And I've got some illustrations in the book. You may say something like, have you made any more connections between what you do at work and why you do it? Or have you thought about anything we can do differently uh, to support our purpose? Or you might, you might ask, have you identified anything we're doing that contradicts our purpose? See, these are all informal questions that you can pose. It's not going to take a lot of time. You don't have to go to your office. You don't have to schedule a meeting. You don't even have to sit down. These can just be standing conversations or, as I said earlier, informal conversations that you can enfold over Zoom or uh, Teams or whatever platform you're using virtually. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think the other piece there is uh, by doing this frequently, you build some rapport, you build a relationship with that person. They, they, they realize that you don't just come down and chat with them during performance review time or just when they're doing something wrong or just when, you know, it is at negative moment. You, you, you have care, concern, and even a, a empathy for them, their job, and, and kind of guiding and mentoring them, which I think is, is kind of a magical piece of this whole thing here. Yeah, um, I do too. Yeah. So uh, I want to jump ahead here a little bit, um, uh, kind of to, uh, I like this conclusion, start with one. So what do you mean when you talk about start with one? Start with a single revelation conversation. And the reason that I say that is, is I've read a lot of business books. You've read a lot of business books. Your audience has likely read a lot of business books. And as you read them, I'll just speak for myself. As I read them, I'm like, wow, this is really good information. Wow, this is really, I'll make a margin note here. I'll highlight this. I'll circle that. Um, I'll put an asterisk here. I'll think about how, how I can apply it in my real world of work. And then I'll put the book down afterward and forget everything I just read. <laughs> and, and so that's why when I came to the end of this you know, business book, um, at least that's where they file it, um, when I came to the end of this book, I really wanted to challenge readers to just simply start with a conversation. If, if you've you know, a- appreciated what you read, if, if you felt like, you know, there's some good points here, and I think that by applying this in my real world of work, I could see some gains in terms of employee engagement, in terms of customer satisfaction, you know, whatever uh, KPIs or objectives you might have, that rather than just put the book on a shelf, that you, um, that you just initiate a, a single conversation. And I've got a spot in the book where you can actually write the name or the initials of the person uh, who you're thinking about having this conversation with, uh, the time, the date, the place. All of those things will start moving you toward that conversation. And in my experience, it's one of those things where the very first revelation conversation that I had was probably a little stilted, a little awkward. But right now, it's effortless. And that's where I'd ideally like readers to get. Yeah. No, I think that is a great target, great goal. And again, uh, you know, listeners, you know, every once in a while I'll reference uh, a book as, as a quick reference book, one that you uh, need to have either on your desktop uh, or on uh, a bookshelf within arm's reach. I think this is one of them just for what uh, Steve was talking about there. So you have it uh, handy 
as a reminder and as a guide on on when and how uh, to have these conversations. So uh, I highly recommend that, that you get a copy again and keep it close by and add it to your kind of quick reference collection there that I talk about. Um, well, Steve, we've, we've been chatting here for a little over 40 minutes at this point in time, and it has just been a brilliant conversation and time has gone by uh, super quick. Uh, but I'm kind of curious here, before we work to close out, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to discuss that you really want to leave listeners with before we get out of here? You know, I mean, I could, I could continue talking <laughs> about my book. It's a little bit like a, a book report when you're asked in school to, uh, you know, share your book report with the class. I always get excited to talk about the book. Uh, Earl, I think that your questions have been masterful and have uh, led us, you know, through the, the three parts of the book uh, to reveal, to connect and to inspire. I suppose the last thing I would say is just to echo what we were just talking about with the start with one uh, chapter in the conclusion is just really encourage, uh, encourage your listeners that if they do choose to pursue the book, uh, that, they, that they, they do that and that they do something with it. I know from experience uh, that you will see benefits from doing that. Mm, no, thank you very much for that. And, and uh, you know, you've been uh, a great, a great guest on the show and I give this compliment out a, a few times, but I, you know, I always mean it when I say it, I'm going to mean it here. One thing I love is finding somebody who, who really uh, loves and breathes what they talk about. Cause I go back to an old Einstein quote. He says, uh, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. And when I talk to somebody like you who can, who can take these, these aren't like overly complicated concepts, but mm -hmm. they are things that a lot of people get wrong and you have a good way of explaining them why they're important, why they're important to get right. And it definitely shows that your, your experience comes through and you understand uh, what you're talking about and you can explain it very simply for, for folks to pick up. Um, right. Well, and, it's not, it's not physics. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there is that. Um, but some people try to make it out to be, and I think that is the one thing that, uh, uh, working with leaders is, you know, folks don't, don't overcomplicate simple, right? A lot of this stuff is, is fairly simple. It's, it's difficult, uh, due to the interpersonal pieces, but it's, it's really not as complicated as we'd like to make it out to be. Um, but Steve, uh, so people want to find out, more about you. They want to pick up copies of the book, maybe connect with you on social media, uh, maybe have you come in and work with their organization. What is a good place for them to, uh, to, to reach out to you? That would be at my website, Earl, which is Steve Curtin, C-U-R-T-I-N.com. Love it. And listeners, uh, as always, I'm going to have that in the show notes. So it's just a uh, link click away and uh, you'll be able to access uh, all things Steve through stevecurtain.com. Uh, well, Steve, again, I just want to say thank you very much for being an outstanding guest here on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I know that my listeners have taken a lot of value out of the conversation we had and listeners, I know you're going to take a lot more value once you go grab a copy of the book and really dive deeper into the topics that we really just scratched the surface on here. So again, thank you for being a great guest and having this outstanding conversation with me and my listeners on this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Earl. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. 
I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wannabet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wannabet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid.